Aristotle once said that knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. And I think that is a fitting way to start today's episode as we dive into the importance of building your self-awareness, getting in touch with what you're feeling, how it's making you feel, and identify who you actually are in order to grow into your best self. Get ready, get set. Today's brand new episode with my new friend, Michael Cashew. My name is Jake Thompson, your Chief Encouragement Officer, and this is the Compete Everyday Podcast, a show designed to encourage and equip you with the tools to build a winning mindset so you can build your winning life. Text PODCAST to 972-945-9113 to join our Morning Motivation Club and visit CompeteEveryday.com for past podcast episodes and to learn more about our resources and gear for ambitious people who are ready to start winning. Welcome to the show. Welcome or welcome back to the Compete Everyday Podcast, Competitor Nation. I'm excited you're joining me today because today is your boy's 40th. It is July 5th. I recorded this episode with Michael uh, back in May and today I am off getting to celebrate uh, another milestone and what I'm excited about starting the second half and hopefully not the second half. I'd like the second half to start around 50, but... Based on the average lifespan of men being just below 80, I'm going to say today is kicking off the second half, and I'm going to make it the best half. And I'm glad you're here to not only hang out with me for the next 45 minutes or so, but meet my friend Michael and find out how you can get better. See, I I know a lot of people listen to podcasts, and then they go about their day because they don't implement anything. But you're here. You're part of Competitor Nation. You're all about figuring out What can I learn and how can I use it to improve? What's new that I can apply in my work, my relationships, or my life? And I think Michael gives us some gems today for that. So I'm excited you're here. I'm grateful you continue to come back to the show. If you are not in our free Facebook group, I would love for you to join. It's super free. All you got to do on Facebook, search Competitor Nation. You'll find us in there. Uh, What I'm doing is organizing some meetups throughout the late summer and fall as I'm going to be on the road all over the country working with clients and keynotes in, uh, man, all over. I've got Michigan. I've got Florida. I've got Texas. I got Michigan again. I got Mississippi as well, and a few more that have not been finalized yet, but are looking likely for the fall. And if I'm coming to your city, I'd love nothing more than to grab a cup of coffee and shake your hand and say thank you for being part of Competitor Nation. So be sure to join our free Facebook group. You'll find out about those meetups in person and a chance to connect with other Competitor Nation members. But that's enough about me. You guys do an amazing job of supporting and sharing the show. So I just want to say thank you. And I'm excited to introduce you to Michael Cashew. Thanks for having me, dude. Stoked to be here. Yeah, this will be a fun conversation. A lot of our listeners may know your name, especially those that have spent some time in the CrossFit space. And, and we'll touch on that a little bit, but really more fascinated by the journey and the work you're doing now. And so I'd love to kick off for you just learning about where your obsession for personal growth, developing yourself really originated from? Mm -hmm. 
So one of my mentors says our greatest gifts lie next to our deepest wounds. And so this whole obsession with knowing myself and psychology started with my own addiction. So at nine years old, I had my first drink of alcohol by myself, smoked, uh, smoked my first cigarettes. And by the time I was 14, I was addicted to marijuana and a bunch of different pills and I was using them daily. And it continued to progress. I I started to become ashamed of myself based on decisions that I was making, like stealing and cheating and um, things like that. I became depressed. I became really anxious. And my life was just completely unmanageable. My parents ended up sending me to a wilderness therapy program when I was 17. And that was the beginning of my recovery journey. <clears throat> that experience in the wilderness, the way that I describe it is it took my snow globe of a brain, right? This chaotic, shaken up snow globe, and it just allowed everything to settle for the first time in my life. For the first time in my life, I, was, I had a sense of clarity about who I was, what mattered to me, and I started to get a glimpse of what life could look like without drugs and alcohol. Now, my recovery journey was very long. It took a very long time for me to stay committed to recovery and sobriety for myself. But that was the first time that I got a glimpse of who I was without drugs or alcohol. Once I practiced some of the things that I was learning for long enough, like feeling my emotions, expressing them to other people, giving and receiving critical feedback with people that I loved and people that I was in treatment with. And I got to see the impact that it had on how I just perceived reality, the impact that it had on how I felt in my body, how it felt just to be me. That felt really fucking good. When I started doing that for long enough, I felt so good. I had this overwhelming feeling that I wanted to give back. I wanted to, I wanted to, um, I wanted to give what I was receiving to other people. And so I started my college years right after rehab, thinking I was going to become a social worker. And then I thought I was going to become a psychologist. And so 10, 12 years ago, I started to get the, get, you know, the, the seeds were planted for me doing work with people to help them feel their emotions, to help them with their relationships, to help them find more purpose in their life. And I tried a bunch of different things and I never felt, I had never felt like I found an authentic way to, to serve people in that way until a couple years ago. Uh, but those were where those seeds were, were planted. So uh, we're going to talk about that thing that you created a couple of years ago. Before we get there, I'm, I'm actually quite interested in a couple of pieces to this. First is the idea of knowing the emotions and then being able to express them. I feel like, as, especially as men, it's something that's taught to suppress a lot, especially I grew up in the 80s. Uh, you know, I think we're not too far off in age where that's not something we do that seen as not a sign of toughness and things like that. And, and there's a disconnect if you're not 
knowing or expressing those emotions and how you show up. And so for you, take me through that journey where when you started the, the substance abuse and going that way, it was kind of suppressing a lot of those emotions. So then you had to face it. How have you dealt with now kind of in your life of sobriety, teaching others the importance of getting in touch with them and being able to express those emotions, especially as men uh, in today's mm. culture? Got it. So mul multiple threads there. First, I yep. want to acknowledge that I haven't been completely sober in about 10 years now. I was, I was completely sober for five years and then I've started to use some things recreationally and some things even as like for like medicinal purposes. Yep. And, and I have the healthiest relationship with substances that I've ever had in my life. So, okay. First, let's talk about why it's so valuable to have a good relationship with our own emotions. Um, as men, we know that it feels great to have direction in life, to know what we want and to see ourselves moving towards that, to be able to set clear boundaries with people. Those are very masculine traits. Yep. In order to have a direction, like to know what we really want, we have to know what we feel. We have to know what we don't like. And so, in order to know what we what we want and what we don't like, we have to know what we're we're sensing inside of our bodies. So how I help people and how I learn to do this is um, first learning to tune in to the physical sensations inside my body. Before I can name an emotion, I have to be able to notice tension expansion, warmth, um, heaviness, those sorts of visceral sensations in my body. Then I can, so I can, I can notice first there's a, there's a tension in my chest, or maybe I'll just, I'll just literally do, I'll, I'll name what I'm feeling right now. Um, I'm feeling a warmth and a little bit of tension in my chest. And now, after doing this for years and years, I know that warmth is like a, a comfort that I have being in a position like this and, you know, having a conversation that's being recorded. The tension is like, it's still a little bit scary. I know hundreds or thousands of people are going to listen to this. I want to sound smart and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I have a little bit of tension as well, a little bit of fear. So first tune into the physical sensations and then just experiment with trying to name what you think those emotions are. Then you'll get the feedback, you'll get feedback from the world that tell you if you are correct or not. And then you just iterate doing that over and over and over, over the course of years. And you can start to fine tune what you're feeling more quickly. And when you can do that, especially when you can do that under duress, in conflict, in high pressure situations, you start to be able to just watch those emotions happening versus getting abducted by them. So then when it matters, when you are you know, in a big negotiation, when you're in a conflict with your wife, when you are under financial pressure, you can operate at your best. You can take the best possible actions um, 
at your disposable disposal, given all of the, the knowledge and resources that you have versus being again, abducted by those emotions and being crippled by them. Yeah. And it all, I would also imagine because of that moment, that awareness and understanding and being able to not become taken over by them, you can reframe some of those situations or that pressure or certain things that you see a little bit differently because you're more in mm -hmm. control than being controlled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know, maybe a, a past version of myself would feel that tension in my chest that I have right now. And then a story would pop up that goes something like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're, you don't have anything valuable to say. And then that ends up spiraling and making it really hard to be present here. But now, again, after doing this for so long, I recognize that feeling and I could see the old story come up and I could say, you know, thank you for, for trying to protect me. I don't need you right now. What's really going on is Jake invited me here for a reason. I do have, have something valuable to say, and that just helps me be present and just show up as best as I possibly can. Do you write down this stuff? Like as you're going through processing, what am I feeling? Are you journaling it, writing it down, making voice memos, or just mentally trying to connect each time you feel that with that experiment? At this point, I'm not writing a lot down, but I've done so much, so many different writing exercises of this stuff. Two of my favorite specific um, bodies of work are number one is the work by Byron Katie. It's a series of four questions that can help you go from being stuck in a really limiting belief to almost immediately once you start practicing the work consistently you can almost immediately get yourself back into a state of presence and let go of the limiting belief so the, the work by byron katie is phenomenal another one is a process uh, that i learned from mark england who owns a company called procabulary and now he owns enlifted yep. athlete and the exercise goes like this think about a triggering experience in your life then if you want if you really want to go deep into this work you can think about a, a recent triggering experience tune into the physical sensations in your body so one of the one of the experiences that i did some work with him on is a panic attack that i had maybe eight or nine years ago at, at the first brute retreat it was a company that i owned previously and uh, he had me tune into the sensations that I had right after that panic attack. And it was like overwhelmed, fear, shame, et cetera. And he said, now imagine in your mind's eye, go back in your life and think about every other time you've felt that set of emotions. And I just want you to tell me the title of those stories the times in which you felt those and what led up to them. And so I'd go boom, 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 boom. I had like 15 different stories, titles. Then he had me write out one of those stories in vivid detail, everything I could remember from that experience. Then he had me read the story to him at regular speed. And then he had me tell him what I was feeling out of 10. And at the time it was like an eight or a nine out of 10. 
Then he had me read it again at 70% speed. I rated the emotions again. It was like a five. And then he had me read it one final time at 70% speed, pausing at every punctuation, commas, periods, et cetera, taking a deep breath at every single punctuation and then rating it again. <clears throat> and then one final step that you can take is you can look at certain statements in the story that you wrote out. And it might be something like, and that's how, that's why I know I'm worthless. Or that's how, how I know my mom doesn't care about me. These definitive statements. <clears throat> you can take a look at those and then ask yourself, is that true? And this also relates to the work The one of the, the, actually the first question in Byron Katie's work is, is it true? So you're going back into these formative experiences in your life, whether they be recent or early childhood experiences and asking, is that true? And you don't ask it from your intellect, you ask it and then you, you sort of meditate on it. You let it seep into the center of your heart and you ask, is that true? And what you'll almost always find is, no, that's not true. What is something that's equally or more true than that? This is reframing old beliefs. And then I might, you know, I might find that it's equally or more true that actually my dad deeply cared about me in that, at that time. And he, he was doing the best that he could. He didn't have any other tools to give me. And by doing that, well, I'll, I'll back up. Those experiences, even though it might seem really silly that this is the case, those beliefs, they travel with us for decades and they affect every single thing in our life. They affect how we feel. They affect how we communicate with our parents. You know, if it's a belief that about my dad doesn't love me and thus how we relate to every single person in our life. My uh, relationship coach says for every one unit of personal development work or work we do with our parents, we receive 10 units with our intimate partners, 100 units with our children, and 1,000 with everyone else. So for every, every, every little um, bit of improvement we experience with our parents, it's a fractal for everything else in our life. And it just, uh, it improves everything else, every other relationship uh, exponentially. So those are two very specific practices that I've used to take a look at beliefs, associated emotions around those beliefs. Um, and, and, and like the, what's going on with both of those is just bringing consciousness to different parts of our life. I had a recent coach who said uh, one, of the, one of the things he believes most deeply in is the healing power of consciousness. What I'm trying to do as a coach, as a leader, as a parent is just to help bring more consciousness. When I become more aware of my patterns, of my emotions, oftentimes I don't have to do anything else. I just heal. 
I just have more freedom. I have more inner peace. And it's simply by just becoming more aware of those things. Fascinating. I, I, I love just how you wrap that up, the exercise, the resources there. One of the things that I see the connection with, mainly because of the work I do and, and some of our mutual connections in the space is people on the outside may be listening to you and think, now, wait a minute. Aren't you the guy like brute strength, physical training program, working against gravity, nutritional, where did this come from? Mindset's at the, at the core of a lot of it. But now it's kind of, I would almost say you're leading with these conversations of building self-awareness and thing. Take me through some of that journey of those pivot points along the way that I see some of those dots connecting, but I'm curious how you looking back now see your professional journey connecting. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, I thought I was going to be a social worker. I, I did a bunch of uh, like I assisted with group therapy and addiction therapy and I realized very quickly that I wasn't ready for that. That just hit way too close to home for me. Essentially, a bunch of the addicts that I was working with were just dying. And that was way too painful and challenging for me. Then I thought I was going to be a psychologist. That didn't really resonate for me. I didn't like the idea of being a researcher. And I ended up graduating and thinking I was about to apply. I was about to apply for physical therapy uh, school. That felt like a, a great way to use my love of, of fitness and also just serving people. Around that time, I was offered a job as a strength and conditioning coach at Southern Utah University. And that was the beginning of what uh, it, it was the beginning of a pattern that I'm quite proud of in my career, which is saying yes to what's exciting. So what I what I felt when I was offered that job was that that was not my deepest passion. It was not going to be the most fulfilling thing I could possibly do, but it was really freaking exciting to me. And there's a guy named Charles Eisenstein, I think his name is, um, that says, always say yes to what's exciting because even if it's not your final calling, when your final calling shows up on your doorstep, you have developed the muscle of saying yes to what's exciting to you. And so I said yes to this thing. And within a year and a half, two years, I realized that wasn't for me. I do not, I don't like the like good old boy system of collegiate strength and conditioning. It, it didn't feel like a meritocracy to me at all. Yep. And I also didn't resonate with, I'm going to help the top 0.1% get 1% better. That just wasn't very fun for me. And so right around the time I, I got a job at LSU and, uh, while I was there, I started my first business, which was Brute Strength. And again, that felt really exciting. It felt like a really exciting leap to me um, to start investing in that. While I was at LSU, I was an intern and I'm 21, 22 years old. And I'm, ha you know, at this point, I had already been, I had already sponsored dozens of other alcoholics and drug addicts. And some of these guys were, they were psychiatrists. I had a doctor that was one of my sponsees, like very successful men. Um, 
I had spoken, I had spoken at a ton of different AA meetings. And I say that to say I hadn't, I had no problem having deep conversations with people. And so I'm this 21, 22 year old, um, coaching some of the best athletes in the country. And oftentimes I'm, I'm talking to them about like how they're doing in their life. And I'm talking to them about mindset related things not because I get anything out of it, just because that's the types of conversations that I was always having with people and that excited me. So I start brute strength uh, in, the, in the office on the off hours in between training football players at LSU. I realize I don't wanna do that anymore. Me and Matt Bruce and my, my uh, other partner, Tommy Hackenbrook, we decide we're gonna try to we're going to go all in on brute strength. And we got, we had a lot of success pretty quickly because we were in a rising industry, you know, an industry that was just exploding. And within a couple of years, I started tinkering with adding personal development elements into our program. So I would add like meditation and um, different breath work things not in a super intentional way, but I was, I was always trying to introduce people to some of these modalities and practices that I found on my own personal development work, uh, personal development journey. I was trying to introduce people to those. Along the way, I realized I was, I, I just felt done with fitness and training programs. And so I sold that company to one of my business partners to join a D at WAG. And we had a lot of success there as well. And I continued to try to tinker with the personal development stuff. I had a short run of doing some one-on-one -on -one coaching for some of our executive leaders. And then at some point, maybe a couple of years in, I created a personal development program for about 20 of our staff members there. It was not very good, but First I did versions my, of know, anything I, never are, right? Yeah, yeah, I did my very best. And uh, I so appreciate them for being guinea pigs. I, I know that some people got a lot out of it, but it was, it had a lot of work to be done. But that was my you know, that was my continued tinkering at WAG. And then in maybe July of 2019, I think it was, I was involved in uh, a personal development course of my own, a leadership course. And the guy, the leader said, okay, I want you all to take a big poster board out and I want you to draw the most adventurous thing you can imagine creating in your career. And the idea for what I do now just flowed out of me. And essentially what I do now is I take men on epic outdoor trips and I help them find clarity, connection, and inner peace. And um, I haven't turned back. Haven't turned back. I love that. I, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, the retreats, but before I do, I've heard you talk about it a few times in terms of your early years in sobriety, uh, fitness, things like that, the importance of who you run with, of your teammates in life, who you surround yourself with. How do you intentionally guard where you go, who you invest time with, and who's closest to you? 
because knowing we have seasons in life, things change. And sometimes we outgrow circles and, and we outgrow individuals and relationships. How do you stay intentional with who's closest to you? <clears throat> so when Adi and I moved to Austin, we realized that we were feeling very lonely. We had been traveling for three or four years nonstop and we made friends everywhere we went, but because we were only there for a year or so and we were busy traveling from that place, it was really hard to make the deep connections that we were yearning for. So we both made a conscious decision that we were going to place community, building community as one of our very top um, priorities. and what we would have to do to uphold that value is we would have to stop working late at night we would have to start making more time to hang out with people okay another decision we made is we noticed that one of the biggest things that kept us from developing new friendships was we would invite people to do things and they would just not be able to hang out and we would do that a couple times and then we would have this feeling and i'm sure you felt this way or people listening have felt this at some point oh this person that i want to hang out with they don't really want to hang out with me they're not reciprocating and so i'm not going to keep putting effort into this relationship that had happened to us a number of times and so a decision that we made was we're just going to we're going to stop giving a shit about whether or not people reciprocate. We're going to start telling ourselves instead that these people that aren't reciprocating, it's not that they don't want to hang out with us. We're fucking awesome. They want to hang out with us. They're just busy like we are, and they haven't yet gotten to a place where they're valuing community like we want to value community. And so we just became the initiators. We became the initiators for How did that five, mindset shift times. affect y'all's relationship or just how y'all showed up? Massively, massively. Like we, you know, we would get turned down sometimes, like I was about to say, like six, seven times before someone would say, yes, I'll, <laughs> shit, yeah. You're, if you're going to hound me like this, I'll just, I'll get together, right? Yep. And we would do it over and over and we, okay, so this is, something I have to say, yeah. we have a high level of self-awareness. If, if someone really didn't want to hang out, we would pick up on that and, you know, we would, we would just let, let it be. Yeah. Do y'all have any kids? Uh, yeah. Now we have two kids. Now you have two kids. So like my wife and I, we don't have kids, but I can a hundred percent relate because trying to coordinate with friends that have kids, yeah. like different schedules, soccer games, all of that kind of stuff. And to your point, changing the story you're telling yourself as a couple of why they don't do it dramatically changes how you start seeing those situations as well as your persistence mm -hmm. in investing in that relationship. Mm -hmm. And with busy people, you just got to tee it up for them. You got to make it as easy as possible. So we became the initiators and we became the initiators that would bring other people together. Because everybody, and we, you know, we're in a very transient city in Austin where no one really has long-term deep relationships. We just started giving people an opportunity to meet other people as well. 
And we just kept showing up for that. We kept making a lot of time for it. And we have cultivated a community around us that I would rate a, a straight 10 out of 10. It is so beyond anything I ever imagined. Now, today, what I constantly ask myself when I am, um, you know, like sort of checking in on my friendships and especially when I'm checking in on new friendships that I want to cultivate, I ask myself, what do I want to want? So this gets into a concept called mimetic desire, which essentially is that human beings are imitative, imitative, we imitate others. Yep. I think that's actually in the, in the definition of, of human beings. It's like human, we, yeah, we just imitate yeah. what we see other people doing. And not only that, but we imitate what other people around us want. The theory is that we have a really hard time knowing what we should want in life. And so we co-opt our desires based on those around us. And so I think to myself in my heart of hearts, what I want to want is to live a more simple life, to live out in nature more, et cetera. Like these are some of the things that I deeply want to want. There are some things that I, you know, if you look at my calendar and my, where I'm spending my money, it doesn't really reflect living a quote unquote simple life. It's very complex. I'm traveling a lot still and things like that. But when I think about who I want to spend time with, I, I want to spend time with people that are doing a lot of work with their hands that are that are already living a more simple life and that can, are continuing to want to maintain that lifestyle and when i spend more time with people that what want what i want to want i start to genuinely desire those things and i start to become more like them yeah and that I love that aspect because, you know, one of the things we've talked about on here is, you know, identifying and putting yourself in the circles with the people who have the habits that you want. It's like the mm -hmm. fitness side, you know, the people that are mm -hmm. going to get up early and train on Saturday are not going out balls to the wall at happy hour Friday night because they want to get up and train and feel good in the weekend. So if that's what you want to start doing, those are the people to start hanging out with and you better keep I think up. That's the Hell yeah. I was going to say, yeah, yeah you better keep up. Otherwise they're not going to want to hang out with you. <laughs> Yes. I think what you're talking about is the most powerful factor in all personal growth. Decide what you want and then surround yourself with people that want the same and are all already have the habits that it takes to get there. Yeah, for sure. Yes. And the last piece, um, I forget exactly how you asked it, but, uh, I am pretty Ruth. I don't know. Ruthless is not the right word. <sighs> I like ruthless. I'm though. very, I'm very consistent with telling people no. If I don't want to spend time with someone, then I tell them no, and I do it in a very graceful, loving way. And where this comes from is that um, I've I've in, I've ingrained the belief that I don't owe anyone anything. If someone needs my help, I'm almost always available for help. But if you're asking me to hang out with you as a friend and 
you don't like your values at this stage in your life don't match mine and you don't challenge me in ways that I want to be challenged right now. Or if simply I don't have enough time in my life for you, then um, I don't owe you anything and you don't owe me anything. And um, I think that that is one of the best acts of self-love that you can give yourself is protecting your own time and energy and spending time around people that have different values that are, you know, to get a little woo, like on a different frequency than you at this point in your life has a massive impact. And when you say yes, when you really want to say no long enough, your self-esteem is really impacted. Yeah, no. And, and to your point, your calendar and your time is, is the one asset you never get back. And so you have to protect it very ruthlessly. I, I said ruthlessly recently as well, but religiously is a great way to put it as well. Like you've got to be very protective of that time and where you invest that time because it's your life you're trading. Essentially, mm-hmm. you're trading life for that. And so is that a good investment or not? Uh, talking about investing in life and yourself, I, I want to dive into a little bit of these men's retreats you do and, and just give us a snapshot of Who's a great fit to attend and what's the experience like? I know you do a few throughout the year. You've got a couple as one, you do them in different locations, but kind of from a top level, who's it ideal for and kind of overview what that experience someone could expect coming in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're a good fit for these. If you are a high performer, either an entrepreneur, founder, a leader in whatever your work is, and you've already realize that more achievements are not going to get you what you want out of life or you're open to seeing that you're open to exploring that and what these trips look like are i essentially like i've just i've just created something that i would want to go on so it's a there are challenging trips for some people it's the hardest physical thing they've ever done in their lives. But for people that I know a lot of your listeners are CrossFitters, people that have done a lot of CrossFit, it's going to be a moderately to like pretty hard experience. They are completely, uh, we're completely immersed in nature for five to 10 days. And we're hiking, you know, we're often like hiking or canoeing in a big loop. And all along the way, we're stopping, we're writing, we're doing different exercises that help people bring consciousness, go, go deeply into past experiences, present experiences, and where they want to go in the future. Why is it so important to do something like that out in nature versus, hey, let's rent a conference center and do it here? I think a better question is like, why is it important to ask questions and have conversations out in nature? <clears throat> the reframe presumes that being out in nature is the most potent part, which it is. I could, almost anyone I work with, I could just send them out into this same location and take their phone away, even without giving them a single question, and they will come back as a better man. They will come back with more clarity and more inner peace. The questions and the the opportunity to have an experienced leader like myself 
um, the opportunity to be surrounded by other like-minded men, all of those help people get more out of being deeply immersed in nature. One of my core beliefs is that everyone I work with has all of their answers already inside them. We have this innate wisdom within us that's just often covered up by worries and responsibilities and um, just all of that, you know, I said the snow globe earlier, it's like all the shit in our lives. When we get still and silent, we realize how much we have inside of us. And so I'm kind of rambling now, but nature, the nature aspect of these trips is the most potent medicine that I'm, I'm sharing with people. I, I, uh, I figured as much based on you talking about your own journey and going to that, uh, through rehabilitation, you know, your parents sent you to the wilderness camp mm -hmm. and then just hearing you talk about the importance of getting out in that. Plus, you know, what we see with all the science of just helping your body come awake, you know, Andrew Huberman's work of like first thing in the morning, get sunlight on your face, mm -hmm. get outside. There's, there's something to nature and sunlight and what it provides. And for those listening, I, I really want to encourage you to go check out the guys listening, soulsearchingadventures.com, which is what Michael's talking about that he runs. But the tagline and, and kind of the homepage I love because the first time I read it for hazardous wilderness journey, physical and emotional hardship guaranteed, many days completely disconnected from society, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, growth, clarity, peace, and connection in case of success. When I read that, my immediate thought went to uh, Wild at Heart by John Eldridge mm. and just the inner calling for a lot of us to take on the adventure. And so mm -hmm. I absolutely love that. I love how you talked about it right there, what, what it entails, but more than anything, the beauty to come of it. And as we know, through physical training, through mental training, through life training, sometimes it's that discomfort that we intentionally put ourselves into that provides the most growth for us and the most clarity. And so uh, if you're listening, I want to highly encourage you to check that out. I know one's already sold out this year. You have multiple events throughout the year. So there's plenty of opportunities for those listening to get plugged in. <clears throat> Before we wrap up, I know you're active on Instagram, but you do a lot of writing and have a, a newsletter called, I believe, The Exhale. I do. You do. Okay. So where can listeners one get signed up for the XL and what to expect uh, in terms of reading? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's at mcas.substack.com. And I'm writing about how to build a career that you love and better relationships. Those are the two main topics. And I'm writing in a way that I would find entertaining if someone else was was reading it. So I'm starting to write more fictional pieces and humorous type stuff like satirical stuff. And I'm having a blast doing so. Love it. Love it. And we've got links to both the Outdoor Adventures and his Substack in the show notes. Michael, man, really appreciate you coming on the show this week and enjoyed getting to connect with you. Thank you so much for having me, Jake. This has been awesome. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Compete Everyday Podcast. To get in touch with the team, drop us an email to podcast at competeeveryday.com. And to find out more about our resources, content, and gear that will help you build that winning mindset so you better compete for your best life, visit competeeveryday.com.